Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. I was surfing through some entertainment news a couple of weeks ago and I came across a story that said that James Cameron had announced he was going to make four new Avatar movies. Now, six, seven years ago, Avatar was big news. It was on thousands of screens across the country. Uh, it was making money hand over fist and the sequel seemed ripe. Well, then it didn't happen. And then it didn't happen again and again and again. It seemed to take Cameron a long time uh, to fit it in between all the other stuff that he does, but also to come up with, I guess, four new stories that he wanted to tell. Well, today I was looking and he's announced that not only is he going to make four new movies, but he's going to shoot them all at the same time, kind of, I guess, the way you would shoot a miniseries. So he'll be shooting across all these scripts uh, simultaneously. On Monday, maybe he would do a, a scene from the fourth movie on Tuesday, maybe a scene from the second one, Wednesday from the third one, and so on, uh, working across eight hours of story until he would have four completed films. Now, it's an ambitious project. Peter Jackson kind of did the same thing with the Lord of the Rings movies, but this is a whole lot of story, and with Cameron's uh, need to really push the envelope uh, with technology, I'll be really interested uh, to see if this stays on budget, to see, uh, you know, how uh, over they go, because it just seems like an impossible thing to do, but he's the guy to do it. Uh, anyway, it made me think of an interview that I had stored deep, dark, in the back of the House of Krauss vault uh, from, uh, I think it was around 2010, probably around April of 2010. Now, the man who had made the most technologically advanced movie to ever hit the big screen had just hung up on me, and it wasn't on purpose. Calling from his car, James Cameron was defeated by some really simple machinery, his cell phone. But a minute later, my phone rang again. Hey, Richard, sorry about that. It was totally my bad. I was reaching out to, to turn up the volume and I hit the disconnect, which was right next to it. <laughs> In the conversation that followed, we talked about Avatar. We talked about putting together big budget entertainment like this. We talked about The Terminator. We talked about I'll Be Back. We talked about all kinds of things. James Cameron is a fascinating guy and always up for a bit of back and forth. Here's our conversation. I've just come from a film, a documentary about the rock band Rush. And in the documentary, they, they talk a great deal about finding a balance between the uh, technical proficiency that each of these players has, they're all sort of virtuosos, um, versus making sure that the song is still the most important thing. And it sort of brought to mind, uh, I think anyway, for me, the work that you did on Avatar. Can you tell me uh -huh. a little a bit about finding a balance between working with very new technology and yet maintaining the storytelling, which in, as far as filmmaking goes, is at least you know 50% of, of the deal of making a great film. I, yeah, I think it's I think it's the, the most important factor by far, and you know you just have to keep that in mind. I mean, I think earlier in my career, I, you know, I love the visual effects so much. I may have gotten distracted by that a little bit, although I always put a high premium on story. Uh, you know, I think that uh, as the films got bigger, uh, it got more difficult to, you know, with, with the abyss. Let's say it got more difficult to balance the effects on the spectacle with the emotional component. But I, I sort of had to go through that growth stage before I got to Titanic. By Titanic, I knew so you know so much in my DNA at that point that the, the story had to be 
uh, first and foremost, and all the you know the visual spectacle, visual richness of the film was in support of that. So I kind of had it in balance by then. And then with uh, with Avatar, we've got a second nature, uh, which is not to say that it's easy. Uh, and I would say one of the biggest challenges of Avatar was was staying kind of fresh to the storytelling as a filmmaker over a four and a half year period, especially in the last six months or so of editing the film where where you know I, I was so close to the to the fabric of the film every day that that uh, you know I don't want to say I was trying to get numb to it, but it, it, it got harder and harder to be objective and to create in my mind how the audience would respond never having seen it before. Right, well, David Cronenberg's told me that in his earlier films, when he was in the editing room, he was so familiar with the story that he would say, oh, people will understand that. If I take this out, people won't miss it. And then he says that, as a result, his first couple of films are almost incomprehensible now because yeah, he took out too that much. Sort of explains, that sort of explains <laughs> some of his movies, actually. I get that. No, you do. You become very familiar with your own... Uh, with your own uh, Story to the point, you know. Look, I believe I have a pretty good mechanism for constantly saying, "How's the audience supposed to know that? Right. How are they supposed to be grounded in this moment?" But you know, conversely, I've also found that you can be a little too repetitious with concepts, and the audience could jump ahead of you. And if that happens, that's a problem as well. For the audience to be too far ahead of you, okay, I get it, I get it already. Move on. You don't want that response either. And, and carefully modulating that response is a very difficult thing. I always work with with uh, at least one other editor on, Titan, on, on uh, Titanic and Avatar. I worked with two other editors, and we were a three-person team. I was, you know, an editor in ter equal in terms of, of, you know, responsibilities to, to them. You know, we'd cut scenes and then give them to each other to, to think about or re-edit and so on. And so it was really a group dialogue. I think that's a critical part of it. You've got to have that dialogue. Well, are you a believer in test screenings or no? I think you learn a lot from a test screen if you know how to use it. We were a little bit worried about it on Avatar because we didn't, you know, it was so under wraps. I mean, it really was a Manhattan project. So we, we did what we, what, you know, I like to think of as closely held test screening, uh, where we, we got, because uh, Fox is a big organization, so we got, you know, secretaries and friends and family, you know, spouses of Fox employees to come in. And, uh, you know, we did cards. And we did a couple of those, and we learned a lot about the film from that. I think it could be valuable. Well, John Landau told me that he knew that it was going to be a hit, or at least he, he, he felt it was going to be, when Steven Spielberg came to one of these and said, you've hit it, you've, you've made it, you've made a great film here. When did you know that Avatar was probably going to be an enormous hit? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I knew it until it was really out there. I, I, had, a, I had a suspicion that the film would perform beyond what its opening weekend would indicate. I felt that our, our challenge was not the film itself as much as the marketing of the movie. You know, as we didn't have, you know, we didn't have Brad Pitt, George Clooney. We didn't, uh, you know, it was an unfamiliar story. It was, it, we had to create a brand from scratch. There were a lot of marketing hurdles. And we had these characters that were blue and were maybe a little off-putting when people first saw them. I, I was much more worried about the 30-second TV spot than I was, I was about how the film played. I knew the film played fine. So I sort of I sort of felt that we wouldn't really know where we were until the second or maybe even the third weekend. Now, normally a movie's all done with the crying by the third weekend, but right. I felt that we were going to hang in there 
And our strategy was to release on December 18th, which is the same date we had for Titanic. We knew we would be relatively unopposed in the marketplace for at least a month. So if the film worked, you know, it, it was going to have a chance to, to, uh, to flourish. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. But it was never a slam dunk. There's always a great deal of uncertainty going into these things. Yeah, I mean, I guess the old saying is if you knew what goes into making a hit, then everyone would do it, and there'd be nothing but hits out there. I guess, or there'd be nothing but the same movie. Right. Uh, you know, uh, but I think, you know, when, it wasn't so much when Steven saw the whole movie as when he saw, I showed him about 35 minutes of the film, and he came out, and, uh, you know, his praise was really off the scale, and it, it was really... You know, such a such a great moment for me as a filmmaker to to you know be praised by you know Stephen, who's who's the best, absolutely, and the guy that inspired me to want to want to be a director. I don't want to make him feel old. People say that to me all the time, and I'm like, oh man, you know. But uh, you know, it's only probably an eight or ten year gap, really, uh, from when he was doing some of his early big films and when I jumped into it. Right. Now, were you ever concerned about, because the, the 3D that's in this film, and I'm not going to dwell on the technology uh, uh, for long, but I, I wanted to ask about the 3D in this film. Were you ever concerned about uh, the audience's threshold for watching uh, a film that's a bit longer than some of the other 3D yeah. films and a bit more intense? Think, yeah. Absolutely. It was a concern. I mean, we really, there was no data on that, you know. We, mm -hmm. You know, there'd be a, been a few 3D hits out there, Ice Age and... Uh, Monsters versus Aliens and so on and you know they were relatively short films under 100 minutes and you know here we were putting out a film that's uh, you know two hours and, and 42 minutes uh, so we but I was aware of that from the get go as a possibility as a possible problem so we were pretty conservative in, in the 3D we weren't constantly trying to rip your eyes out of your head <laughs> now, how do you think it will play on television? Because, it's, as we said, right. it's coming out on DVD. And I know the DVD, there's no extras, no trailers, nothing. Every inch of, of space on this DVD has been used to present the, the, the film in its most uh, flattering way. How do you think it will play at home? Yeah, you know, look, there's, there's certainly plenty of storage density on the, on the Blu-ray. On the, on the standard depth DVD, to get a longer picture onto one disc, mm -hmm. You know, you do run up against some some uh, some issues. Uh, so, in terms of, of the uh, the authoring format, compression, and so on. So, we did we didn't want to load it up with a bunch of other stuff that would that would sort of uh, reduce the quality. But honestly, that wasn't the major issue. The major issue was that to do a good job on a special edition takes more than a couple of months. And you know, I was out selling Avatar and, and on the and on the the awards circuit and dealing with environmental stuff that came up as a result of. Of, uh, of Avatar, and uh, yeah, I didn't have time to do all that, all that stuff. I, I don't think there would have been time even if I'd focused on it from the day we, we finished the movie. So it's going to take until November for us to do, to, to do good supplement stuff, to, to uh, finish the, the scenes that are going to be reinstated and so on. Uh, so I didn't think people wanted to wait till November to see an Avatar DVD, so we put the, we put the plane wrap version out, which, by the way, is the highest-grossing film in history and got nine Academy Awards nominations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like people should acknowledge that that's, you know, that that film needs to be in the marketplace before we start screwing around and getting creative. Right, and you don't need all the other stuff. Yeah, right. exactly. 
But you know, we're we, we're uh, I got Fox to approve finishing six minutes of deleted scenes up to to uh, a final final level, which is not a trivial thing. Right. You know, you spend more. We spend more than than a, a million dollars a minute finishing the scene from the level at which I, uh, you know, when I sign off and call it call the scene finished, frame accurate, edited, composed, all the virtual cameras done to the time it's done is a million bucks a minute. So, you know, I got Fox to put up for some pretty serious money to put into, you know, finishing these scenes. Then it's going to obviously go off DVD, the special edition. But we're also going to do a theatrical re-release uh, in August as well. At least that's the plan as of right now. So uh, with, the, with the added footage, you'll be able to go back to a 3D movie theater or an IMAX movie theater in August and see a you know, kind of 2.1, you know, or one, I guess, yeah, 2.0 version of the movie. Right, the Mach 2 version. The uh, Mach 2 version, yeah. They, can you, uh, you, you mentioned a million dollars a minute. As an, as an artist, can you allow yourself to think about the money while you're doing it? I mean, I, it's got to be part of the job, but it, 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 I would think that the weight of that would be very difficult to um, perform under. Well, we're very cognizant of the fact that it's a big, expensive movie, but it's not like that was thrust upon us. We went out to do that. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that when you when you make a film at that highest level, you know that the imagery is going to be quite astonishing. Right. And that's what I'm all about. That's what my career has been about. I mean, starting with uh, starting with The Abyss and then Terminator 2, Five, Titanic, every one of these films was, you know, decried in the largest possible headlines as being the largest or the, the highest highest budget film of its uh, in history and, and its time. You know? Well, that's a promise in a funny way. Right. Uh, you know, it's kind of like threaten me with a good time. <laughs> I'm going to go to a movie theater and see a movie that costs a lot of money for my for my same price ticket. Of course, now we, we've uh, we've subverted that a little bit with, uh, with the 3D because now we can charge a little more for the ticket. But the film industry is, is one of the most amazing businesses in the world, because no matter what you spend on the product, uh, the, the, the cost is the same. Right. It's strange, you know? You right. buy a blender and it costs more to make, it's going to cost more to buy. Right, it's, it's like, a movie. or if you're buying a shirt, if you're buying a, a Hathaway or a Versace shirt, exactly, the, the, price, the, the price differential is huge. That's right, but, it. but it's, not the case in, uh, it's not the case in movies. Right. And that's probably fine, that's, that's, that's alright, but... Uh, you know, I mean, I think that it's the best bargain in town when a movie costs a lot of money. But, you know, I mean, as, a, as an artist, you know, I think, you know, I've made little films, I've made documentaries, I've made big films. Mm-hmm. I, I can only work as hard as I work, and there's no, there's no sort of second position on my throttle. Right. It's full throttle. So it might as well be the highest grossing film in history, because I'm working like it is anyway. Well, is there is that perhaps why uh, you take a little bit of time between projects because you do go so full throttle? No, I'm working full throttle on something else when I'm not making a movie. Right. You know, I made four I made four documentary films mm-hmm. between uh, I made uh, I made a TV series. I made four documentary films. I did six deep ocean expeditions. I worked on two space projects. Uh, you know, I was working on a bunch of other stuff too. Some of which hasn't come to fruition yet. So, you know, I, I'm never standing still. You'd like to stay busy. Yeah. 
Well, exactly. I mean, I, what, what do you put uh, down on your your passport application when you, when I met you know you mentioned uh, I would add activist to that list. I would say uh, <laughs> filmmaker. I would say, you know there there are so many. Uh, you have your hands in so many pots. What would you put on your your passport application as uh, occupation? Uh, well, like when I'm when I'm going into a country and I'm filling out the landing card, yeah. I usually put writer. I usually put writer just because it's short. Right. But filmmaker and, and, and you know, customs is going to look at you like you're smuggling some dope or something. <laughs> so I figure writer is safe. And, they, and they'll start asking a lot of questions. Absolutely. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, That's five minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask. I wanted to to uh, ask you a question about uh, the original Terminator film, if I may. We're almost sure. uh, out of time here. Um, uh, the line "I'll be back" uh, has yeah. been has been so uh, adopted in popular culture. Is it true that it was originally scripted as "I'll come back"? And if so, how did it become "I'll be back"? Uh, yeah, in, in the in the treatment, it was it was "I'll come back." In the script, it was "I'll be back." Um, I don't remember why I changed it. I just thought it sounded better. Right. And when you write something like that, I mean, I guess there's no way to know that you're writing a line that's going to affect people, but um, why do you think people, or this line struck such a chord with people? I think it's, it, there's something, there's something about the way the line plays, not just Arnold's delivery, but the fact that You've seen enough of him in action up to that point to know that when he says, I'll be back, something really bad is going to happen. <laughs> that it, it's not, you know, there's a, there's a counterpoint between the, the, the innocence of the words and, the, and the, the, the threat that is a wink to the audience. And the audience likes to be in that position of, of, of knowing, knowing what's going to happen next. They may not know the details, but they know something bad's going to happen. And then it pays off. He just comes flying through the through the window in a car. You know, it takes out the whole place. Mm -hmm. So there's something kind of delicious about the anticipation that it produces. I guess. I don't know. I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. Yeah. Well, it's. Uh, I, I just saw it again the other day, which is why I ask, uh, why I bring it up, because it, it, it works so well. And, and um you know, I've been. It got me thinking about other lines, and you have a number of lines that that have become iconic. Have you ever written a line that you thought would really connect with audiences, and then it didn't? I guess that's a difficult mm, question. No, I don't think so because I, I, I think it's a very hard thing to try to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think I was somewhat self-conscious about it when I did Terminator Two, and when he says. Hasta la vista, baby. Right. You know, that I knew that I was doing a line, an Arnold's line. But I think it's a very dangerous area uh, because it can so easily blow up on you, and I tend not to do that. Right. Right, because uh, you don't want to take the audience out of the story, I guess, when with them going, oh, it's another cute line, or it's another, it's a joke yeah. in a scene. That and I really, re I really realized how fragile that was when I had, I had written True Lies, and I didn't think it was funny enough. So I hired a comedy team to come in and punch up the dialogue because right. I wanted it to be, you know, an action comedy. And all they did was write about 20, you know, Arnold one-liners. Right. And it really reminded me of kind of like bad James Bond, you know? Yeah. And the James Bond films have evolved as well, and they don't do that anymore. But there was always that kind of, you know, uh, wink and a nod to the audience, kind of stupid line, cap line to a scene. 
And uh, they wrote about 20 of those. And I threw them all out. I hated them. Uh, because I, and I realized that tonally it was just going to screw up the movie. So then I decided, well, maybe this movie's not, maybe the script's not funny enough, but I'm going to shoot it as it is. And look what yeah. happened. And it was still funny. Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Cameron, that's our time. Thank you so much uh, for uh, taking the time to speak to me. And uh, congratulations, not only on the success of Avatar, but you have to know this DVD is going to be uh, enormously successful as well. So congratulations. Well, also, from, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> well, and, and uh, hello from Canada. I don't know. I'm, calling, right, you, we're, we're, I'm speaking to you from Toronto, so uh, close-ish to your old stomping what's, right? uh, what's the weather like? It's beautiful here today. Uh, I don't know. I've forgotten how to use Fahrenheit, but uh, it's around uh, about 20 degrees. We didn't get That's any snow great. this year, so. Oh, well, but, but, uh, but we all know that climate change is a hoax. Well, I know, I know. I mean, th this is, I know, one of your, one of your uh, 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 very important causes for you. And I, I, I'm amazed that people can look at uh, what's happening here, for instance, when we had no snow in Toronto uh, for an entire uh, winter and, uh, and not acknowledge that something's happening. Michael Moore wrote in one of his books in the intro, I think it was in Stupid White Men, where he said, you know, if it's uh, uh, 95 degrees in February, People go, I love this weather. This is the most amazing weather. But if they woke up or if they, if they went outside and it suddenly went pitch black at noon, they would go, something's yeah. really wrong here. And yeah. that's what people don't seem to understand. No. No, look, I could go off mm -hmm. on this. I could go off on a rant, but, but let's not. But uh, I saw a funny cartoon the other day where, uh, where uh, you know, they were showing all the things that they needed to do to, to fix climate change, and it was like, you know, uh, energy independence and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, job growth through renewable energy projects and all this sort of thing. And the, the guy in the foreground is pulling his hair out saying, but what if it's all a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? <laughs> That's very funny. I, I, don't get, I don't get the downside. I don't get why, why the right thinks that, science, that, that thousands of scientists have all hooked up in a big collusion to dupe us all. There's no logic to that. I mean, it's insane on its face. It's, it's delusional. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, why, why not? Why not recycle? Yeah, why, why, not, why not do what we morally know we should be doing? Exactly. Now, and, go ahead. Yeah. Anyway, like I said, I'm not going to start down that path. That was my conversation with James Cameron. He's making four Avatar movies at the same time. I can't even really basically walk and talk at the same time, which is why I'm sitting right here in a big comfy chair at the House of Krauss, broadcasting to you now. I'd love to continue talking, but that's it. That's all the time we have. Time for you to get out of here, go have a life, enjoy the nice weather, or go home and watch Avatar again, or maybe The Terminator, or maybe True Lies. Do whatever you want to do. You just can't hang around here anymore. But be sure to come back next Monday. We put a new episode up every single Monday, and you never know who's going to stop by for a visit.